You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I'll start out with an apology. I apologize. It's been a while. I've been doing an inordinate amount of travel. In fact, I've had travel <laughs> seven weeks in a row. Boy, I'm in here late on a Thursday night recording this because I've got one more day in the office and then I'm going on vacation for a bit and taking some time off. And trust me, I really need it. <laughs> I really need it. I love being out on the road. I love meeting people. I love sharing this message with others. I love the feedback. I do think that one of the things that separates us and the message that we share with people and the way our conversation has unfolded is the fact that we get out and talk to people, right? You know, it's one thing to to write and blog and get your feedback from Twitter. It's another thing to stand in front of a group of 200 people and chat and then stay afterwards and talk to people. It, it really changes your perspective. It really broadens your understanding. I'm deeply grateful. But the last trip I had, I came back feeling ill and spent like four days in bed, got up, did another trip, had my voice just almost completely gone. And now I'm back in the office trying to uh, button some things up before I head out of town. The other thing is that this is the fourth, fifth version of this podcast. Not the Strong Downs podcast. This episode of this podcast. I, I've gone through this one a number of times and just didn't feel like I got it right. And so there's a very high likelihood that this version won't run either. <laughs> so... Maybe I'm just doing an exercise in futility here, but we'll see. I want to talk about 15-minute cities, and I want to talk about it in my way. I want to talk about it in uh, a strong towns kind of way. And to do that, I've seen the controversy. I've, I've experienced it. I, I got kind of heckled and shouted down in some ways when I was up speaking in Alberta, Canada. I don't think that the crowd, the people there upset and angry in the crowd were representative in any way of, of the overall whole, but they were very vocal and they wanted to be heard. We had a hard time kind of getting going in that conversation because of the disruption. I've seen the articles, obviously in the planner world, which I'm adjacent to, there's a ton of dialogue going around right now about 15-minute cities. And I'm going to say almost all of it, almost all of it kind of sneers at the conservative wacko crazies who are pushing this crazy conspiracy theory about 15-minute cities. I want to tell you, that's not my take. Before I get into this, I'm going to pause and do a disclaimer. And I'm going to do this disclaimer, not because I'm trying to chase people off, but because I, I really am sensitive to the feedback and the tension. At Strong Downs, we do a, a lot here to try to transcend the just kind of dumb political dialogue we're having in this country, the juvenile Twitter-esque kind of dialogue that we're having in the United States, and to some degree in Canada as well, although I think it's, it's more pronounced here. I'm going to say up front, 
that I'm doing this particular episode of the Strong Towns podcast to speak directly to people who identify as conservative. I'm trying to talk here to conservatives, and I'm I'm doing this as someone who considers himself to be a conservative. I know that the definitions have warped and changed and morphed over time. I've identified as a conservative-leaning person for a long, long time. That shouldn't come as a shock to any of you. But I'm going to speak right now today to my fellow conservatives. And I say this up front because there's a lot of people out there who identify as progressive, who love Strong Towns, who think that we're a great organization, a great movement. Thank you. I love that you're here. I warmly embrace you and, and invite you to be part of our conversation. And I invite the concerns and the priorities that you have to be concerns and priorities that we share, right? But I'm going to ask you right now to do a self-evaluation. If you identify as a progressive and you know yourself to be maybe a little bit extra partisan or someone who can be triggered by having people who disagree with you or your opinions or represent things or give voice or platform or validity to other points of view in a partisan spectrum, you might want to sit this one out. And even more so than sitting this one out, I'm going to say, like, I really don't want your scathing critique here. I'm going to talk in a, in a genuine way to conservatives. You're welcome to listen in. You're welcome to be part of it. But I don't want what I say to be like snipped out and posted on Twitter and then, uh, you know, taken out of context and sincerity. And I, I don't want to hear from all the people who are like, yeah, I don't want to be a member of Strong Towns anymore. It happens now and then. I just want to make sure that we can have this conversation, which I think is a really important one, without all the blowback and, and craziness. This is a thoughtful audience. You are thoughtful people. You wouldn't be here if you were just mindlessly partisan. So let, let me have this conversation, please. I'm not going to sneer at conservatives. And I know that sometimes there's a certain gratuitousness involved in our politics today. And people want to hear the people that they admire and the, the thought leaders that they follow bash the, the other. And I'm not going to do that here. Disclaimer over, all right? Let me start this by saying, I do not think that conspiracy theories are something to be laughed at. I do not use the term conspiracy theorist as a pejorative. I've heard people that I admire say what I think is very obvious, that people of wealth and power conspire. They get together and they decide things. They collude. They, uh, you know, join and, and have conversations about how the world should go. I mean, that people of wealth and power conspire. Recognizing that and understanding that should not make one a conspiracy theorist, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that like JFK was killed by a cabal, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, go down your long list of conspiracies. You know, I don't think 9-11 was an inside job, right? But the idea that people with wealth and people with power would seek to use that wealth and power to influence events, to me, is obvious. And I think that the pejorative use of the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist, is really, more than anything else, designed to squelch dissent. It's, it's an assertion 
of power. And it's an assertion of power that I often hear a lot of progressives, a lot of liberals make, right? Like if you don't agree with them, you are a quote unquote conspiracy theorist. You're a nut job. You're crazy. We don't have to listen to you. I find that offensive. I do think that people of wealth and power conspire. And to deny that or to suggest that doesn't happen is just plain wrong. Let's look at the pandemic for a second. As a way to get to 15-minute cities, I'm going to take some tangents here, and I want to talk about some things because, again, I'm speaking primarily here to conservatives, and I want to express some empathy. I want to express some sympathy. I am, in many ways, one of you, and I am sensitive to many of the same things that you are sensitive to. When the pandemic started, I, like many of you, had a certain degree of apprehension this was a, a novel virus, meaning we hadn't had it impact us before. This is a new thing on the scene. I was looking at kind of early tracking. And, you know, while I am adverse to projections and all of the kind of craziness and, you know, just uh, motivated reasoning that goes into most modeling, it wasn't very hard to look at the virus as having a few variables and say, these variables can be off by, you know, big factors, and we're still looking at millions of people dying. This was kind of scary. But I remember taking a walk in the very early days of the pandemic with a friend of mine. And this is a friend of mine who did not understand or, or could not grasp why anybody would be saying things like we shouldn't have lockdowns or we shouldn't be shutting down businesses or we shouldn't uh, be requiring masks. To her, it was very clear that the people who were saying those things or suggesting those things were not only insensitive, they potentially were willing to kill grandma for their own being able to go out to a bar or what have you. There was no kind of empathy or no uh, attempt to understand why someone would reach a different conclusion. I was watching Chappelle, a YouTube video, and it wasn't a joke skit or anything like that. It was just him talking. And he does these monologues sometimes. They're, they're fascinating. He was talking about being a kid, and I think going to New York for the first time, although I, I could be wrong about that, but he was talking about going to a, a big city and he, he got there and he didn't have much money and he needed the money he had and he actually needed more money than what he had. And he was walking down the street and he came across a card game. And it was one of those card games where, you know, you've got three cards and you move them back and forth and the person who's playing the game will make a bet and then they'll, they'll point to the red card. There's one red card and two black cards. You point to the red card and if you can point the red card, you, you double your money. And Chappelle watched this game go on for a while and over and over and over, it was very obvious what the red card was. The red card was kind of bent up and you could tell. And, you know, the people who were playing would sometimes get it, sometimes not. But to him, it was very obvious. And he, he realized like, I can win this game like really easily and I, I need more money. So I'm going to play. And he put his money down, basically everything that he had down. It wasn't a lot, but it was, uh, you know, for him, it was all he had at the time. Put the money down and, and played the game. And then the cards went around and obviously he knows what the red one is. It's the one with the edge tipped up. He pointed and they flipped it over and it was black, not red. What the heck happened, right? And when you hear him tell the story in Chappelle style, even though he's not telling a comedy bit, it's funny you live it through his eyes 
And he's like, what, what just happened? What, what just happened? How did, how did I lose my money? So Chappelle, brilliant dude, sits and watches this game, watches for a while. And what he realizes at a certain point is that the people who are around this game, who are playing it, who he's seen, you know, win, lose, what have you, they're in on the bit. The bit is to basically jack the money out of uh, the guy walking down the street, right? It's to try to uh, scam uh, the sucker. And Chappelle recognized I was the sucker. I, I did not realize that all these other people were in on the game. So he sits there and watches it a while, and then someone else comes up. You know, the, the next version of Chappelle, the next sucker, and puts his money down. Chappelle says, hey, 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 hang on. Dude, don't do that. All these guys are in on it. And the guy whose card game it was grabs Chappelle by the collar and is going to throttle him. And the way Chappelle tells the story, I mean, it's, it's way better than what I'm telling it, obviously. It's really good. But he says, you know, the guy looked in his eyes and he didn't throttle Chappelle. Chappelle's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And the guy says to Chappelle, don't ever come between a man and his meal. Meaning you're messing up my meal ticket here. Like this is how I'm supporting my family. This is how I'm paying for things. This is how I'm getting by. Don't come between a man and that or you're going to pay. It's going to be hard. As I'm walking around town with my friend in the early days of the pandemic, and she's saying, I can't believe that people would be willing to kill grandma. I can't believe that people would be so selfish. I can't believe uh, that people would want to have their businesses open during this horrible pandemic. I tried to explain. If you have, let's say, a one in a hundred chance of getting COVID, and you have then a, a one in a hundred chance of dying. So you have a one in a thousand chance of dying from this. That's not a chance that I want to take, right? Personally, like that's not a chance I want to take, but I have nothing at risk here. I had nothing I was going to lose. I could work from home. I do work from home right now. I worked from home before the pandemic. I work from home now, right? Um, I had nothing to lose. But if I had spent years building up a business, if I had sacrificed and sweated and uh, risked a, a lot and was at some way and form and put time and energy into building up this business, or even if I were an employee of a business and had devoted time and energy to not only building relationships, building customer bases, build, you know, establishing myself as a worthy employee, someone worth a raise or what have you. And you told me that we were going to shut that down and that now there was a one in a thousand chance that I would die from COVID, but there was a hundred percent chance that I would lose my business. I am going to have motivated reasoning, what, what psychologists call motivated reasoning. I'm going to actually be willing to believe things that I hear that would make the virus seem less lethal than it was. That is very, very human it's a very human thing to do. It doesn't mean you hate grandma. It doesn't mean that you don't care about your fellow uh, humans. It means that you're very, very sensitive to the idea that you could lose everything financially, everything that you've worked for, everything that you've set aside, like all kinds of, of stuff that you have put into your current position. Don't get between a man and his meal. Related to that, if we look at the pandemic, there are a lot of people who, even as things were starting to return to normal in parts of the country, 
did not want things to return to normal and were very, very sensitive and remain to this day very, very sensitive to the threats of this virus to themselves and to others. And part of that motivated reasoning is at least informed by or at least inspired by the notion that they like working from home, like the lifestyle that they have post-pandemic, you know, appreciate their living arrangement. They are, in a sense, more sensitive to the impact of the virus because of the comfort around them. If they were in threat of losing their job, if they were a threat of, uh, you know, having extreme levels of discomfort, psychology would suggest that their views of the virus would morph. Again, that's human behavior, right? I tell this story because I want us to be thinking about uh, what we are sensitive to. Jonathan Haidt, a psychologist, developed something called moral foundations theory. And I think his work is just brilliant. He, he wrote the book, The Happiness Hypothesis. He wrote the book, The Righteous Mind. I find his insights to be not just brilliant, uh, but really, really helpful for me in understanding others, other people that I run into, and, and what their reasonings and motivations are for doing things. In moral foundations theory, Haidt lays out different factors that go into uh, how we interpret the world, different dispositions that people have. He talks about us seeing the world and seeing the morality of the world in five different what he calls channels. Harm care, how much does something, an action or policy, a, a behavior harm people or improve people's care? Fairness versus cheating. Is something fair? Uh, is someone getting by with something? Uh, is someone cheating the system? Loyalty and betrayal. Is a policy or an action expressing loyalty or is it being unloyal? Is it betraying some kind of trust or bond? Authority, subversion, is there a respect for authority uh, or are we trying to subvert authority? And then the last one, sanctity, degradation, are, are things that are sacred held and considered sacred and treated as sacred or are they being degraded? Here's the fascinating thing about Jonathan Haidt's research. He found that conservatives and liberals measure very, very differently in these five channels. In fact, he said, if we look at the five channels and think of them as kind of a mixer, right? So each can have like a, a, a volume from zero to 10 and you can kind of adjust up and down. Liberals tend to have harm care up to 10, maybe up to 11, right? They got that channel on the mixer all the way to max. But the other channels on the mixer, right, is this fair, loyalty, authority, sanctity. These things are almost down to zero, maybe one or two. Maybe there's some, some ways that that is measured, but they're really, really deeply discounted. Liberals tend to care very deeply about harm and care. And on the other channels of morality, they tend to de-emphasize them in a, in a very significant way. Conservatives, on the other hand, have what Haidt has characterized as a, a five-channel morality, right? Conservatives will, yes, value harm care. They, they don't want to see people harmed. They do care about the well-being of people. But they balance that harm care with, is this fair, right? Fairness. 
they balance it with loyalty. They balance it with authority and a respect for authority. They balance it with sanctity. We've done these things internally here at Strong Towns where we've taken Jonathan Haidt's quiz and we've looked at the results. And it's fascinating because within our movement uh, and within our team, uh, we have people who are all over the political spectrum. And what we find is that the suggestions, uh, the findings of this moral foundations theory uh, holds within our organization with people we've interacted with. The people who are progressive tend to be very, very sensitive to things that harm people. Conservatives are sensitive to things that harm people, but instead of having it at the dial at 10, we'll have it at five or six, and they'll have the other dials in the range also around four, five, six, right? Somewhere in that range. It's a, it's a more balanced approach. I bring this up because I think we have to recognize the things that we are sensitive to, right? Let me give you some examples. When we talk about the economy, many liberals that I know, many progressives that I run into are, are very deeply concerned about impacts to the poor. There's a joke in conservative circles. So if you are, if you're not a conservative, I've told this joke to liberals and, and I've gotten blank stares like they didn't get it. But there's a joke in conservative circles about things like the New York Times headlines. The joke goes, there's an asteroid about to hit the earth and wipe out all of humanity. What would the headline be? And in the New York Times, the headline would be, asteroid to wipe out humanity, women and minorities hardest hit. The joke is that we're so sensitive to the disadvantaged, so sensitive to the vulnerable that it's impossible, even when everybody's being wiped out, to not look at things through that lens. That's, that's the liberal lens, right? But when we get to something like the economy, conservatives tend to be more sensitive to a broader spectrum of things. Yes, there's a sensitivity to is someone being harmed? Uh, but there's also sensitivity to, like, is this policy fair, right? This is why you often hear uh, conservatives, when we talk about things like social welfare, um, having much more reservations than liberals do. Liberals are very, like, will this help someone who's being harmed? Will this provide care for someone who is going without care? And conservatives will say, okay, I, I get that to an extent. I'm maybe not as sensitive to it as you are. But I also want to make sure that this policy is fair. Is someone a freeloader? Is someone not doing their share? Liberals tend to discount this, right? I want to switch to climate as a, as a second example. Um, because we often hear when we listen to progressives, when we listen to liberals, a lot of concern about climate change. In fact, there's often times when I'm like, why, why are you bringing climate change into this? Like, where did that come from? But there's a, there's a deep sensitivity to things that are environmental, impacts on the environment. And oftentimes you'll be talking about, you know, what, whatever random thing. And all of a sudden the liberal in the room is saying, what's the impact of this to the climate? What's the impact of this on climate change? Are we, are we mitigating our uh, impact on climate here? Um, it will come back to that. And, and it's sometimes bewildering to conservatives because you're like, why? We're talking about, you know, something else completely different. Why is it coming back to this? Because in the progressive lens, there's a lot of harm being done. There's a lot of damage being done. And they're very, very sensitive to that. I get it. I understand. Conservatives, when we talk about things like climate change, are often sensitive to the environment, right? 
but are also sensitive to things like what is the overall impact on the economy? Uh, what's the overall impact on public health, like on on uh, our ability to grow, our ability to support uh, other initiatives, other things that we want to do? These other things, have we made promises? Have we made agreements that we're now backing out of? Is this fair? Is this right? Is this the right thing to do? I'm going to talk about diversity and equity here for a second. At the risk of having this go bad, because this is like the uh, the touchiest subject out there today, but I, I want to talk about this because I want to build a bridge here, and I hope you'll give me a little bit of, of latitude to do this. Obviously, race is a big, big issue in the United States today, and there's a lot of divergent sensitivities uh, on the issue of race. Progressives, liberals, tend to be very, very sensitive on matters of race. And in fact, interpret a lot of things in a racial lens in ways that for conservatives are, are very bewildering, right? Conservatives don't look at things in this spectrum, in this perspective. Uh, there tends to be a, 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 concerns with race tend to be balanced with other concerns, fairness being one. I mean, we can go back to the 80s and the early 90s and discussions over affirmative action which are still rife today, but it, we, we talk about it in different ways. But I, I remember back in those days, progressives were very sensitive when it came to affirmative action to helping people who had been disadvantaged and, and left behind, people who the system was not working for. Conservatives had some of that concern, but they balanced that concern with other concerns like, is this fair? Is this just? Does this uh, subvert uh, a system, do, you know, do we by not having test scores be a way you get into the university? Are, are we doing something that is going to undermine society in some way? I bring this up not because I want to validate or invalidate a, a certain point of view, but I, I'm speaking to conservatives now. I want us as conservatives to recognize some things about these sensitivities. Oftentimes, when liberals get over the top in terms of their focus, their hyper-focus and hypersensitivity on race, there is a tendency among conservatives to say, I am not that. That feels crazy to me. That feels over the top. And in fact, there's a very human response, which is to say, I am the opposite. And as conservatives, we sometimes fall into the trap of actually denying to ourselves, to others, that we share the harm care concern when it comes to race. We do have this concern, right? As a conservative, I want, at the very least, I want equal treatment under the law for everybody. I am offended when a white household will have an appraisal done and then the black household will have the same exact house, just with a black name, have an appraisal done, and the white appraisal will be 50% more, right? Or you'll call to see if a house is for rent, and if it's a white-sounding name, it's for rent, and if it's a black-sounding name, it's not. That's offensive to conservatives, and it should be offensive to conservatives. I think sometimes we react to the liberal excess by doing the opposite and denying that we are sensitive to these things as well. The conservative is a five-channel 
sensitivity. And we should not deny that one of our channels is harm care, right? When people talk about the climate and progressives are very over the top, right? Like, oh, humanity's gonna die in 12 years. We've got 12 months to reverse this, otherwise it's over. You know, this, this like crazy hyperbole talk. It sometimes makes us do the opposite, right? It sometimes induces conservatives to kind of go the exact opposite way and say, I'm, I'm, I don't wanna be like that. I'm not one of them. And I don't wanna be confused by fellow conservatives or by people around me by being one of them. And so I will be the exact opposite. I will laugh at them. I will be about drill, baby, drill, right? Like, I don't care. Let's burn fossil fuels. Give me a big truck and a big exhaust. Let's go. The conservatives that I know, when you talk to them as individuals, might allow themselves mentally to go there as part of a group, as part of an election, as part of rhetoric. But they still care about the environment, right? Like they still want things to be clean. They still don't want to breathe nasty air. They don't want, you know, negative feedback loops in the climate to spin out of control. They are still sensitive to these things. It's just a five-channel sensitivity, right? I don't think we as conservatives do ourselves any favors when we deny that we have this care as a reaction to the over-the-top rhetoric of progressives. I'll say the same thing on the economy, right? I do not know a single conservative who thinks that the poor should starve or that old people should eat dog food or, or any of the like ridiculous things that are often put in our mouths by over-the-top rhetoric from progressives. But I will say that sometimes we come across as very insensitive because we react to that over-the-top rhetoric by being the exact opposite. I'm asking us in this conversation today to not deny um, that side of our five-channel morality, right? I'm asking us in this conversation today to not deny that there are things that we care about. Let's go back to the pandemic lockdowns for a second. I wanna tie this notion of conspiracy theory back into this dialogue about sensitivity because I watched what happened with the trucker strikes in Canada. When I hear the rhetoric from the 15-minute city people, the people who are concerned and upset about the 15-minute cities, what I hear is a group of people who are very, very sensitive to what happened in the trucker strikes. Now, I'm not gonna tell you that I know everything about the trucker strikes. I am gonna tell you what I do know and what I saw. I saw and I witnessed conservative-minded people who did not like the pandemic lockdowns, who did not like the way the government was handling the pandemic, exercise their power to protest by driving trucks into the middle of major cities, particularly Ottawa, and parking them in a way that was disruptive. I think we could talk here a lot about liberal protests and how liberals protest and the reaction to liberal protests. Um, I'm just going to set that out there. I, I don't think we have to go deeply into it, but I, you know, I recognize, and I think you listening recognize that, you know, on, on day one through 60 of the pandemic, we're told it is immoral to leave your home. You are hurting people to leave your home. And then all of a sudden you have a moral obligation to leave your home and protest. 
For many conservatives, this was very, very disorienting. I get it. But I want to look at this trucker strike and say, how would that have been handled 20 years ago, 30 years ago? What, what would have been done 20 or 30 years ago to people who are breaking the law and disrupting a city in that way? Let's say that the government decided this is intolerable. You can't protest in this way. It is illegal. It is intolerable. And we must do something. What would have happened 20 years ago, 30 years ago? In, in the most extreme case, what would have happened is that the military would have been mobilized. They would have gone in and they would have arrested people whose trucks were parked illegally. They would have gotten wreckers and they would have towed the trucks out of there. And you would have had people who were sitting in jail as protesters, and you would have trucks that were impounded where fines would have to be paid and other things in order to get that very expensive equipment back. That's what would have happened. And quite frankly, that would have been in many ways a just outcome or an outcome that I think conservatives would have understood and respected, right? Part of a protest, when you break the law, and this is, this goes back to the, uh, the five foundations, you know, fairness, what is fair? Authority subversion, right? There's authority out there. What happens when you break the law is that the authorities come in, they arrest you, and you pay the fines. You pay the price. And as long as there's a process, and as long as people are treated right, and as long as you go through that process, that is part of the deal. Go ahead and protest, but you're going to pay the fines. That's not what happened with the trucker strike. That's not what happened with the trucker strike. I've got an article here from Reuters. The title is Canada's Crackdown on Trucker Protest Funding May Be Challenged for Insurers Banks. Wow, we're very sensitive here to the insurers and banks. Let me quote from this article. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Monday invoked the rarely used Emergencies Act, imposing sweeping measures that require banks to freeze accounts linked to the protest without court orders, asks insurers to suspend coverage on vehicles used in blockades, and bring crowdfunding platforms under terror financing oversight. Regulations released late on Tuesday widened that net, ordering banks, credit societies, investment firms, crowdfunding and donation platforms to stop providing financial services to people suspected of furthering the protests. Now, that to me is chilling. That to me is deeply bothersome. And I, I realize there's a lot of people out there who were rarely offended by the truckers. I mean, I, I saw a lot of vitriol aimed their way. I saw a lot of, of hate and anger uh, directed their way. I want to say I was sympathetic to the truckers. I, I wouldn't have done it. It wasn't it's not my MO. I understand why they were there and I understand what they're upset about. And to me, their anger and their frustration had some justification, right? That response it is chilling. The idea that the government, and let's go back to Chappelle, you don't get between a man and his meal, that the government would in a sense, extrajudicially, right? Like outside of the system, uh, just decide we are going to get between you and your livelihood. We are going to basically 
lock up your money, lock up your insurance, rob you of your livelihood, not allow you to participate in society. And not only are we going to do that for the truckers who are there, but we're going to do that for the people who are aiding them and supporting them. That is chilling, chilling. And so when people say, Chuck, I'm, I'm concerned about 15-minute cities. I'm concerned about government overreach. I'm concerned that if I don't do the thing that the government wants me to do in regards to the economy, in regards to climate, in regards to diversity, in regards to, you know, whatever the agenda is, that they will come after me and make me unable to work, get between me and my meal. I don't think that that is likely, but I don't think that's completely an unfounded reaction. We saw in the trucker strike what happens when you go against the official kind of left-wing liberal uh, policy, right? Now, I, I would say to the progressives out there that are still listening, you embrace these tactics you know, at your own risk. In Canada, in the United States, there will be conservative governments again at some point in the future. Every tool that is used by the left will be used by the right. And that chills me too. But nonetheless, for people who are very sensitive to government overreach, who are less sensitive to the harm care and more sensitive to other things, um, this was very, very chilling. I want to talk a little bit about just our dialogue in this country. We all live in this world of cable news, right? And, and we've kind of moved beyond cable news in a way, but I, I growing up and, and in my younger years, that was the, that was the big thing. Cable news is ripping us apart. It's interesting because I remember when Fox News started and Fox News was such like a, a breath of fresh air. Uh, because, you know, the, the news was dominated for a long, a, a long, long period of time by what in my estimation, and it's kind of quaint now today, right? Because it was not at, MSNBC levels, but it was it was a, a very pronounced like left of center bias from my vantage point, right? I mean, I realize again we all have different levels of sensitivities, but I remember when Fox News started, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're curating news in a different way. A lot of what makes news left or right of center is not the reporting. Often, it is the articles or the stories you choose to report on. What makes news? is more revealing or more telling of someone's point of view than the way they actually report on the news, right? Like just open your left of center publication and look at the headlines, look at the things they're sensitive to. Open your right of center publication and, and look at headlines and see what you are sensitive to. Back before the internet, when news was, you know, cable news, it was just amazingly refreshing to have a different curation of the news one that kind of, I guess, treated my perspective or my uh, view of the world with a little bit more respect. Today we have social media, right? Where you can exist in a space with an information stream that is completely curated to your point of view. And we all like see how this is dangerous when applied to the other side. We all see how things are manipulated, things are taken out of context, things are blown up, lies are repeated, distortions are repeated 
when the other side is doing it. We recognize that. And again, we're very, very sensitive to it. I have to laugh because there's been a lot made in the last few years about Russian bots. Um, Russian bots influencing stupid conservatives uh, with their simplistic messages. Stupid conservatives on Facebook getting inundated by these you know, messages from Russian bots, manipulating them into believing conspiracy theories and, and crazy things. And it's fascinating to me because if you listen to the people who repeat that over and over and over, the progressives that repeat that over and over and over, they seem oblivious to the central insight that they're making, right? The central insight that they're making is that Russians are using uh, the internet, using social media to feed lies that are tearing the country apart. Yes, I think that that's happening. I think that's, a, that's happening to conservatives. And I think that that's also happening to progressives, right? The idea that somehow progressives are above it all, like they don't get uh, jacked up by messages that target them with crazy stuff is nonsensical. It's unbelievable. It, it lacks any introspection. If you step back for any amount of time and look at the messages that we're constantly bombarded with, I mean, I, I see this all the time in my own Twitter feed. I will post something and then all of a sudden you'll get this crazy response and you'll look and it'll be someone who is following 120 people and has, you know, 13 followers. And when you look at their feed, they've just been spewing junk. That's a bot, right? And they target left of center. They target right of center. They're trying, in a sense, to, to, to drive us all crazy. And so you see like people who are very sensitive to, you know, things like someone wrote a, a, a derogatory thing on the wall in the bathroom stall. And all of a sudden now like that's on social media and it's around and like, oh, look, this is what people in Alabama all do or something like that. And then you've got on the other side, like here's the drag queen story hour. And, and that is, you know, passed around the internet. And well, here's a guy dressed up as a woman with huge fake breasts teaching our kids, whatever. These stories are all designed to jack us up, right? They're designed on both sides to make us kind of crazy, to make us dislike the other, to make us distrust the other, to lose that sensitivity that in a different situation we would normally have. I point this out because I want conservatives to recognize, I want the people in this audience to recognize Everything now is top down, but everything should be bottom up. The political left is way too top down. And I'm not just talking about policies, right? I'm not just talking like every policy has to be a big government program. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going back to Reagan. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying all the narratives, all the talking points, all the conversations, all the things that they are sensitive to come through a top down prism. That's by intention, right? And we can see that. When we look at progressives, we can see that the top-down manipulation jacking them up. But we have to step back and recognize that as a conservative, the politics on the right is also top-down, is also designed to jack us up, is also designed to have us stop thinking critically, is designed to, in a sense, disempower us. The antidote to top-down left is not top-down right. 
The antidote to top-down left is bottom-up. It's bottom-up. 15-minute cities is bottom-up. 15-minute cities is part of the antidote to the craziness that we're experiencing. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, 15-minute cities is a dumb name, right? Bureaucrats are really bad at naming things. If you've been here at Strong Towns any amount of time, you've, you've heard us talk about safe streets and building productive cities and great places. If you get out of our conversation, you'll hear people talk about road diets. Road diets is probably the dumbest thing ever, right? Hey, you know what you need? You need a diet. Who's signing up for that, right? Like who thinks that's a great idea? Well, who came up with that? Bureaucrats came up with that, right? Like people who don't do marketing, don't do communications, don't actually talk to real humans about things. 15-minute cities is the same way. It's like dumb bureaucrats trying to put this like smiley face on something. Ignore the name. It is a fantastic series of insights. The idea that you hear the term 15-minute cities and you automatically think, well, this is the trucker strike. They're going to build a fence around the city. They're going to force you to live inside of it. This is, again, jacked up top-down rhetoric. The bottom-up stuff looks at 15-minute cities and says, this is going to allow you to live without needing outside support. This is going to allow you to live free, independent, without needing things from outside of your neighborhood, outside of your community, without you being dependent on others. Let's get real here for a second. The cabin in the woods is the avatar for the self-reliant person. I live in a cabin in the woods all by myself. I don't need anything. I don't need anyone. I'm self-reliant. Nobody lives that way. I enjoy going out in the woods and staying, right, for a little bit, like camping, recreation, yay. Nobody lives like that. I had a neighbor of mine say, things are getting really bad, Chuck. Like, the society's falling apart. I'm worried about what's going to happen. And I'm like, okay, me too. I get it. And he's like, well, you know what I did? I bought a cabin out in the woods. And if things get really bad, that's where I'm headed. And I said, well, that's like the dumbest thing you could do, right? He, he told me he had like stockpiled food and guns and ammo. And I'm like, well, you better be prepared to kill a lot of people because if you're the only one with food, they're going to come for you and they're going to get it. That's really, really dumb. To me, my answer was, I have gotten to know my neighbors, I live in a neighborhood with people and I've gotten to know them and I've gotten to trust them and they've learned to trust me. And if things went really bad, you know what we would do? We would work together to figure that out. That's kind of classic conservatism. We look at that cabin in the woods as being this avatar of self-reliance, but it's not. The food you ate today was shipped to you from around the globe. The car that you kind of equate with freedom, where was that built? Where was that produced? Where are the parts coming from? If that thing breaks in hard times, are you fixing that in your own city? No, you're not at all, right? Where's the gasoline coming from? You might be in a city that pumps oil out of the ground, but I can guarantee you, you're not in a city that both pumps oil out of the ground and refines it and ships it. That stuff is coming from somewhere else. Where's your electricity come from? Is it coming from your roof, right? We look at solar panels today as this big, huge lefty project. I don't understand that. The people that I know with solar panels tend to be conservatives because I don't need anybody else. Like I'm more self-sufficient here. Your banking, your insurance, your credit card, your phone network, your internet access, all these things 
make you top-down dependent. Top-down dependent. Who are we joking? The antidote to big government, the antidote to top-down, the antidote really to a system of collusion between big corporations and big businesses is not a bigger stick, a bigger top-down stick. It's not a us having our friend in the top-down system. That's the conspiracy, right? <laughs> the one side is jacking up the other, and the top-down people benefit both ways. The antidote to this is bottom-up. It's localism. It's being able to live in a community with other people, dependent on them, not dependent on things outside your place. Be able to live on your own terms. I live a 15-minute lifestyle. What the marketing brochure of the 15-minute cities is selling people, that's what I live, right? I walk most places that I go. I buy local as much as possible. I grow some of my own food. I have relationships with the people around me. I live in a house that was built in 1914. It is in the middle of an urban neighborhood, about five blocks from the core downtown. I'm frugal about my energy use. I have a big pile of wood that I burn for pleasure, but I've also got on hand for emergencies. I don't do this stuff because I'm some type of big government liberal. I don't do it because I'm some type of crazy apocalyptic prepper. I do this because I'm frugal. You could call me cheap, but I'm also really sensitive to not being dependent on some broader corporate government system to provide the basic essentials of life that I need. If you're listening to this and you're freaked out about 15-minute cities, understand what you're really freaked out about. You're freaked out about a top-down system of control and coercion. That's not unreasonable. I get it. I understand. I'm with you. But the answer is not an alternative set of top-down systems that you kind of pretend to control or, or people that you know promise to work on your behalf control. The answer to the top-down systems of control and coercion is a city that you control. It's a bottom-up alternative. And that looks a lot like a 15-minute city. Let me close with this insight because once you recognize this top-down, bottom-up paradigm that we really need to opt out intellectually of the top-down narratives that are being spun at us. We need to opt out culturally of the two sides jacking each other up, distorting each other, pushing us as conservatives to deny the things that we are actually sensitive to and care about in reaction to the craziness of the other that's being constantly pumped into our lives each day. Once you recognize this and refuse to be a pawn of it, something really beautiful happens. You recognize pretty quickly that you have a lot more in common with bottom-up liberals than you do with top-down conservatives. The bottom-up liberals might be sensitive to different things than you are, but they're not trying to jack you up. They're not trying to use you and abuse you to hold on to power and influence. And when you sit and talk to them, you'll actually find out that you have a heck of a lot in common. 
that you have a lot of interests that align. And guess what? When bottom-up liberals sit with bottom-up conservatives and talk about things, they find that they really need each other. Cities, historically, throughout all of human history, have been filled with people of liberal persuasion working together with people of conservative persuasion. There's a yin and a yang there. They need each other. And in a very bottom-up way, what we find in a system that is bottom-up is that we need people who are very sensitive to how things impact people from a harm standpoint. We need people who are very sensitive to the harm being done by the systems we create. And we also need people who are very sensitive to things like, is this system fair? Is it actually going to run? Does it have a certain respect for authority and sanctity that allow it to operate in complex adaptive ways? Conservatives and liberals need each other. And this becomes really apparent when you break out of the top-down paradigm and start working in a bottom-up way. All the conservatives listening today, I am with you. I am not sneering at you. I do not think that your concerns over the 15-minute city thing are unfounded. But I do think your reaction to it is misdirected. We have to break out of the top-down paradigm. We have to stop allowing people to fill us with anger, with frustration, with even with hate. We have to uh, deny these people the capacity to make us insensitive to things that we are naturally sensitive to. And we have to embrace a bottom-up approach. And when we do, we're going to stop getting jacked up over 15-minute cities. And we're going to start to reach out to our neighbors, to those around us, with a hand of friendship, of collaboration, and really of, of hope and optimism that working together, we can build great places, great places to live, places that are resilient, places that are productive, places that are adaptable, places where you can live in a strong town's way a very productive life in a prospering place, a life of meaning where the work and the labor that you put into it will result in your place getting better in a way that you can see, you can experience, you can leave behind for the next generation. That's what the core of conservatism is about. Join me, will you please, in walking away from this fear over the 15-minute cities, don't use the name, don't use the term. I'm with you. It's dumb. But let's talk about how we build strong towns together. Let's talk about how we get out there and make places that are great, places we can be proud of, places we can pass on. It's our work to do. It's our job to do. And we have it within our capacity to do amazing things. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. I'm here with you. I am. Let's do this together. Take care, everybody.
they know that America's one big pothole right now? Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. 